Mark 5, um, verses 21 to 43. Um, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped. And she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with the people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. And now we'll be reading in Romanian. După ce a trecut Iisus iarăși de cealaltă parte cu corabia, s-a adunat mult norod în jurul lui. El stătea lângă mare. Atunci a venit unul din fruntașii sinagogii numit Iair. Cum l-a văzut, fruntașul s-a aruncat la picioarele lui. Și a făcut următoarea rugăminte stăruitoare. Fetița mea trage să moară. Rogute, vino de-ți pune mâinile peste ea ca să se facă sănătoasă și să trăiască. Isus a plecat împreună cu el. După el mergea mult norod și îl îmbuzea. Și era o femeie care de 12 ani avea o scurgere de sânge. Ea suferise de mult doctori, cheltuise tot ce avea și nu se simțise nicio ușurare. Ba încă era mai rău. A auzit vorbindu-se despre Isus. A venit pe dinapoi prin mulțime și s-a atins de haina lui. Căci zicea ea, dacă aș putea doar să mă ating de haina lui, mă voi tămădui. Și îndată a secat izvorul sângelui ei. Și a simțit în tot trupul ei că s-a tămăduit de boală. 
Isus a cunoscut îndată că o putere ieșise din el și, întorcându-se spre mulțime, a zis, Cine s-a atins de hainele mele? Ucenicii i-au zis, Vezi că mulțimea te îmbuzește și mai zici cine s-a atins de mine? El se uita de jur împrejur să vadă pe cea care făcuse lucrul acesta. Femeia, înfricoșată și tremurând, că știa ce se petrecuse în ea, a venit să aruncat la picioarele lui și i-a spus tot adevărul. Dar Isus i-a zis, Fica, credința ta te-a mântuit, du-te în pace și fii măduită de boala ta. Pe când vorbea el încă, iată că vin niște oameni de fruntașul sinagogii care îi spun, Fica ta a murit, pentru ce mai super pe învățătorul? Dar Isus, fără să țină seama de cuvintele acestea, a zis fruntașului sinagogii, Nu te teme, crede numai! Și n-a îngăduit nimănui să-l însoțească, afară de Petru, Iacov și Ioan, fratele lui Iacov. Au ajuns la casa fruntașului sinagogii. Acolo Isus a văzut o zarvă și pe unii care plângeau și se tânguiau mult. A intrat înăuntru și le-a zis, pentru ce faceți atâta zarvă și pentru ce plângeți? Copila n-a murit, ci doarme. Ei își păteau joc de el. Atunci, după ce i-a scos afară pe toți, a luat cu el pe tatăl copilei, pe mama ei și pe cei ce îl însoțiseră și a intrat acolo unde zicea copila. A apucat-o de mână și i-a zis, Talita cumi, care tălmăcit înseamnă, fetiță, scoală-te, zic, Îndată, fetița s-a sculat și a început să umble, căci era de 12 ani. Ei au rămas încremeniți. Isus le-a poruncit cu tărie să nu știe nimeni lucrul acesta și a zis să dea de mâncare fetiței. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me take a seat. Thank you. I remember the first time I ever asked God to heal someone. I was in second grade and one of my classmates who I had really only ever met once was battling leukemia. She was sick, was on chemo, which took all of her hair and on steroids that stretched her body in ways that it was never meant to. And at my private Christian school, we would regularly pray for God to make her well. And we did that until she went home to be with Jesus just a few months after school had begun. Now that experience for me was really shocking, especially in the realm of healing, but more so in a way that was a bit detached from me, it was further off. And so it wasn't until I was in sixth grade that healing and the concept of it became more personal. I was 11 when my sister was first diagnosed with Crohn's disease. This is a disease that affects the intestinal tract of a person and is usually lifelong for most who get the diagnosis. And I have vivid memories of the weeks leading up to her diagnosis. I had never heard my sister cry out in physical pain before, but those days were filled with tears and pleading with my parents for help and relief. Something was very wrong. My sister was in pain and her body was the source. It had become to her an enemy at some level. And I remember waiting in the waiting room after her first scope. We went there together as a family. And I remember when the doctor came out to tell my parents what they had found. 
And I remember there being a lot of confusion and frustration and sadness, but also determination. Uh, There was a determination that God would heal Rebecca. Now options for treatment were thrown out and chosen in the days that followed, but so was prayer. Now the initial diagnosis and treatment wasn't the end, unfortunately for her. For the next five years, we would as a family contend for God to heal her and to stop her suffering. And still at 18, my sister fell so ill that she was emergently admitted to the hospital. She was very thin and hadn't eaten for a good while. She was sick and her body was taking from her that which she needed to live. And that was a weird season. I I remember people, people from our church coming daily really to pray with Rebecca, to pray for God to heal and to set within her what was wrong. And we prayed too. We contended prayer and fasting and then they prayed some more and she was still sick, still bound to the disease that riddled her body. And looking back, I have to say, I never wondered if God was near to us. But I did wonder why his nearness didn't heal her. Healing for me at that point became mysterious and complicated at best. Even incongruent in a lot of moments with who I thought or knew God to be. Healing was this theological riddle to me that I couldn't seem to solve. And I imagine in a room this size with people joining us online that I'm not the only one who has felt this way. Healing, I think we'd all agree, isn't simple. It's this, at times, awe-inducing, often breathtaking, personal, and sometimes gut-wrenching thing. And if you've experienced it or seen it or read about it, you know what I'm talking about. And you probably also know that healing, for most of us, usually comes with layers of questions. Things like, when does it happen, and how do miracles work, and why does it happen for some people? And for others, it doesn't. And while I'd love to tell you that there is an answer to each of these questions, so just hang on a second, I'll get to it. The truth is, there is no biblical formula for healing. There's no one-size-fits-all situation. Which means that if we're going to get anywhere in understanding and experiencing this gift, which we understand biblically is given to us by the Holy Spirit, then we're going to have to move from asking how and why to asking what. What is healing like? What does it feel like? And what is it for? Now today we're gonna look at two stories from the life of Jesus. And from them, I think we're gonna find the answers we're looking for. So you have your Bibles hopefully in front of you still. Look down with me at verse 21. Mark writes, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him. And while he was by the lake, and and him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Here in the text, our scene is set, and Jesus, once again, famously crosses the lake. He does that quite a bit, have you noticed? He's a lake crosser. We never sing that in our worship songs. I don't know, (laughs) something to think about. Now, when Jesus crosses over, a large crowd gathers to meet him each undoubtedly bringing some kind of need to him. And while we don't have a lot of details around the encounter, we are introduced to a man named Jairus, a leader Mark tells us in the synagogue. And upon first reading, that doesn't sound like much. The dude was a pastor, great. 
But this detail Mark's, Mark gives us is important, and it tells a backstory. Historically, the village priests or the synagogue leaders were married pretty young, which means that before they were even old enough to really know the person they were marrying, let alone themselves, Jairus probably would have been a father. Now, if you're a parent in the room, you know that no matter your age or the circumstances of your pregnancy, once you knew that your son or daughter was coming into the world, your truest and deepest prayer for that baby over the next nine months would be, God, let this baby be healthy. Ten fingers, ten toes, everything working the way it's supposed to. And so, like most dads, I imagine that everything stopped the day that Jairus went, Jairus's wife went into labor. Now, imagine it with me. Finally, here was his baby girl. And while I'm not a parent myself, I've been told that your baby's arrival makes love come alive to you in a way that you've never known it. She was his. He was now dad. And she was perfect. Until... The doctor pulls him aside to tell him that something isn't right. From another gospel account and from this text, we know that this little girl had been sick all her life, which meant that in this moment, Jairus would be finding out something that was wrong with his perfect girl. Joy and grief bottled up into this tiny room, into one tiny life. The trajectory of Jairus' life and dreams changed on that day and were shaped by something he was very helpless to stop. And now she's 12, and it's terminal. And she doesn't have much time left, and he knows it, and the village knows it. And I imagine that Jairus had played this moment out a million times in his mind, but tried to ignore it. You know how we do, it's like worst case scenario, I don't wanna play this out any more than I have to. Push away the things that are really difficult, cross the bridge when you have to come to it. I mean, he was the synagogue leader after all. He was the pastor, the rock of stability for his community, the one who's supposed to have it all together, and yet here he was, suffering inside, daily navigating that pressure of keeping up appearances and holding it all together. Jairus had given his whole life to God, and now he found himself in need of him more than ever. And you have to wonder, Especially even thinking, I'm thinking even as a pastor, I wonder how many prayers he prayed before he stopped believing that God might answer. Or how many sermons he actually preached, struggling to believe the words that he was actually speaking to the people. Or how many nights he went to the synagogue in the middle of the night when no one was around to tell God what he really thought. Or how many angry screams or negotiations or offers he made to God in the name of her healing. No parent should have to bury their child. But Jairus was about to. No father should not get to watch his children grow up. But Jairus wasn't going to. That is the man who shows up in our text. This is the man waiting for Jesus to come ashore. A man who knows desperation and yet also deeply knows and, and personally knows the meaning of the word hope. Hope has been defined as the expectation of coming good based on the character and nature of God. Hope was all he had. And yet, hope was the starting point for his daughter's healing. You see, healing always starts with hoping. 
Hoping has this way of revealing both our humanity and dependence, of making us vulnerable, of calling us towards risk, to the belief that just maybe something will change. And it's not easy, because hope is risky. By doing it, you're opening yourself up to the possibility of disappointment, and yet it is a risk worth taking because it also opens you up to the possibility of healing. All throughout the scriptures, we see that hope is the baseline for the miracle. The blind beggar, the friends who carry the paralytic to Jesus, the respected official who interrupts Jesus in the middle of a sermon asking for healing for his employee. Tyler Staten once said, if you want to know what healing feels like, you first have to know what hope feels like. Now, at this point in our text, we can assume that Jairus was done with keeping up with appearances and willing to risk. That his desperation and fear led him to do whatever it took for his daughter to be well. And so we find Jairus, the synagogue leader, a prominent leader in his community, robed in his special garments, now humbling himself in front of the people, falling on his knees in front of Jesus and pleading earnestly with him, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. It's no secret that Jesus did a lot of healing in his three-year ministry. The crowds in our story bear witness to that. You only need to read a few chapters in the Gospels to see that healing was a marker of Jesus' presence. But in order to understand healing, before we can move on any further in our text, we have to first understand why Jesus would heal Jairus' daughter at all. We need to stop here and answer the question of why he heals. The truth is this question left unanswered will keep many of us from ever daring to hope. The tension of brokenness existing in the presence of a good God is enough to frustrate even the most desperate heart. One of the things that sets the biblical story apart from every other story in history is this. It starts with good, perfection, a world without pain, evil, or conflict. And in the book of Genesis, we see clearly that you and I were not created for the world that we live in now. In Genesis chapter one, we see a world without relational conflict, without insecurity, without disease or deprivation, a place that was marked by unbroken union between creator and creation, and it was meant to be eternal. Never any sickness, no suffering, no pain and no death. This was God's original plan for us, for the whole world. Freedom in the truest sense of that word was ours. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we read that Adam and Eve were free to eat from any tree in the garden, but they were told that they must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And regardless of what you believe, you probably know the story. Adam and Eve were deceived and did not eat from that tree. And it was in that moment that the world was introduced to this biblical concept of sin, Sin in today's day and age may sound a bit outdated or even carry with it an, a neutered definition, meaning something like bad moral choices. But if I can put it simply, I'm going to try, sin is everything outside of the perfection we were created to enjoy forever. It's the dysfunction you inherited from your parents. It's the horrible things that were done to you. It's the ways you hurt and victimize others intentionally or unintentionally compounding the pain of their lives. 
But most importantly, the thing you have to get is this, that sin is the source of pain, suffering, and death, sin. It's not just a moral reality we all face, it's the air we breathe in this fallen world. And that's not a Christian idea, it's a human reality. And it's why we need healing. Healing is the putting back together of the things that are broken. It is the crashing in of the way things were always meant to be. You know, often in the biblical story, we hear or have heard in church that Jesus forgives sins, and he does. Aren't you glad? I'm so glad. But if that's it, then I'm not sure it's compelling enough for any of us to give our whole lives to it. There has to be more. The biblical story is not just the forgiveness of sins. It's one that details every ounce of suffering and actively disrupts brokenness at its core. And it restores the world to its origins and life. The biblical story, the one we're living into, is all about God's mission to return the world to the way it once was and the way it was always meant to be. That's why when people like King David prayed for a savior, he prayed things like this, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Or why when Jesus claimed to be the savior, he summed up his ministry this way, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming good news of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And that's why the end of the story is a world of both forgiveness and healing. The book of Revelation says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Healing is not a passive reality, but an active affront to the work of the enemy, which means that healing is also confronting. Healing at its core is a confrontation with darkness, with sin, with all that is and was broken. It's a toe-to-toe -to -toe tango with evil itself, and it is a declaration of war. When Jesus heals, he's not doing so in a spiritual way, what antibiotics do in a medical way. He is pushing back darkness, he is mocking the enemy, and he is ransoming and coming after his own with a love so pure that it pierces and breaks apart every scheme and every stronghold of the evil one. When Jesus heals, he is accelerating the story. He is getting to the end faster. In this one particular person, at this one particular moment, he is bringing into the now the restoration and redemption that is coming. But healing is not just confronting to the enemy, it's also confrontational. It is the willingness to be confronted by the far-reaching effects of sin. Listen, to know healing, you have to be willing to put your faith in action and be disappointed to confront the hard questions and to go on living without satisfying answers. And while that is harder than it sounds, in reality, you can still be sure that the faith you have offered is not in vain. And one day, whether it be soon or in the age to come, all of your brokenness, all of your pain, all of your suffering will be done away with once and for all. If you want to know heaven on earth, you have to be willing to look at the tragic state of the world and believe not just in a concept, but in a person who is right now and in every moment contending and ushering in life as it was meant to be. 
All of Jesus' life was a picture of this. God coming face to face with the human condition, knowing the joy of the accelerated story, and knowing the grief for a promise that seemed like it may never come. Jesus himself wept over the loss of his friends. He gave his trust and the best of himself to one man who would not only betray him, but would take his life. He suffered a physical agony that most of us cannot even conceive and hope for what might happen. He was murdered by the very one, the very people whose suffering he came to take. Jesus knows what it's like to look in the face of what isn't, the face of what isn't, and hope for what will be. Praying for healing isn't some wild, foolish act of naivete or some fanatical, charismatic exercise. Praying for healing is a radical and offensive weapon that only the brave and faith-filled pick up. And it is integral to a life with the Holy Spirit. Now, look back with me at our stories. It's here that I think we're gonna find another key and central component to healing that we can't afford to miss. And it starts with an interruption. Look at verse 25. A woman who was there had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now there are a few things I want us to note, but specifically the waiting we find each of our characters doing. Rewind the story a bit. In it, we see that Jairus has waited for 12 years till his daughter is on her deathbed to seek out this kind of healing that he's after. He also waits on shore, hoping for Jesus to show up. And now he would wait through someone else's healing. A woman in the crowd gathered when the local pastor made such a scene. A woman who is not on her deathbed, who isn't a child, who has lived justifiably long enough to have had a full life. But parallel to waiting, to his waiting was hers. Because this interrupter too had waited. 12 years for the bleeding to stop. She waited in isolation and loneliness because the society she was in would have deemed her unclean and unfit. She waited for children only to realize they would never come. She waited in financial ruin. She waited in doctor's offices and pharmacies and for new medications. She waited. And even as it seemed things were getting worse, she waited. And it's here that we see that waiting with all of its disappointments and emotional ups and downs is a part of healing. Healing means waiting. Waiting on what could be, on what we hope will happen or will be. Undoubtedly, so much is lost and won in the waiting. And this is not a new reality. Waiting has always been at the center of God's redemptive story. In Genesis, we're introduced to a family, to a couple named Abraham and Sarah. Some of you are familiar. And God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a nation, and yet Abraham found himself married to a barren woman. But this God who found Abraham in the desert was calling him, not only to know him, but to believe that he was a God worth trusting, and that through him, God would do more than just produce a people. He would display his extraordinary trustworthiness to the world. So what does Abraham do? He waits. And 24 years later, there is still no baby 
and no nation. Now, the encouraging part of that story for us is that Abraham and Sarah took waiting as well as you and I do. Um, the things that followed were acts of distrust and taking matters into their own hands. It got really messy. You can read it for yourself. And yet still, 24 years later, God in his mercy shows up again and says to them, you will have a son. The waiting didn't wear God down, but it has broken Abraham. And this time, Abraham falls before God and he laughs. His wife, Sarah, didn't do much better. She also laughs, and, what appears, and in what appears to be a perfect line of sarcasm, she says, will I now have this pleasure? <laughs> I love that. Go ahead, girl. I would have said something similar but more polite. <laughs> now, God would heal Sarah's womb, and through her womb, God would heal the whole world. But for now, this couple was trying to laugh it off. Now, humanly speaking, we get it, don't we? It wasn't that Sarah and Abraham were trying to be disrespectful or unbelieving. They just knew what it was to long for the evidence of what was promised, for wholeness and healing for a family. Sarah knew what it was to sit in rooms filled with nursing moms longing to hold her own baby so close, only to leave with empty arms. Abraham knew what it was to long for a family line and the honor and the benefits that came with it, for the promises of God to be fulfilled and the goodness he offered. And so it was precisely the depth of their desire and the years of disappointment that caused them to laugh. In a way, I imagine breathing out their pain and inhaling again the small hope of what God had promised. The complex ridiculousness of it all wrapped up in laughter. You see, healing brings laughter, both the earthly kind and the heavenly kind. Now, the earthly kind is just more realistic. Like Sarah and Abe, it's not unfaithful or cynical, it's just real. It's the kind of laughter that says, open myself up to hope again. I have cried myself to sleep enough nights already, thank you, but no thank you. It's the kind that says, I've told all my friends about this promise from God, and each one smiled in disbelief in the face of my faith. It's the kind that says, I've come to terms with it, please. Don't make me hope again. You see, this kind of laughter holds up the impossible against what's actually possible, and it snickers at how wild and upside down it would all be. This kind of laughter shows up at Jairus' house, too. If you skip ahead to verse 39, we read that Jesus says, this child is not dead, but asleep, and we're told that they laughed at him. And again, their response, their response was not unreasonable. They're not skeptics or cynics. They're trying to grieve as healthy as some people can. And they're probably concerned for their friend that he may not be able to face the facts. Earthly laughter is part of the process. It's acknowledging what is. And it's often a response to the inner question that healing forces us to ask. Why would God heal now and not then? Why would God heal this and not that? Like I mentioned earlier, healing is personal. Many of us know the pain of asking the personal version of that question and laughing. And if this text, and our text from Mark reminds us of anything, it's that we're not alone. Because we still live in a world with sin, the answer to many of these questions remain to us a mystery. 
But what we do know is that there are other people doing the exact same things. And we know that however and whenever God decides to heal, his preferred method is always to come near, to parachute into our suffering and need and to bring both his power and his presence. In verse 27, we read that the bleeding woman in faith reaches out to touch Jesus. Risking dignity and even greater ostracism, she leans forward and touches his cloak. And we're told that in that moment, she was healed. Verse 30 tells us that Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Power. Sometimes in healing, God heals by his power. In an inexplicable moment of heaven crashing into earth, of all that was wrong being set right, this is what the bleeding woman experienced. And her life was forever changed in that moment. But this isn't the only way he heals. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from his house and said, to Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing that, Jesus responds to Jairus and she, he tells him to not be afraid and to believe. Now, whether or not that, that was frustrating for Jairus to hear or it was a moment of relief, we can't say. But the intensity of hearing that your child is dead is something that no one was built for. And yet, in the depth of his worst nightmare, his greatest moment of agony, Jesus, is there, telling him not to fear, but to believe. Jesus goes with Jairus to his home and then into the room where his little girl laid, and there was Jesus with him. Jairus didn't know what would happen. Maybe he thought Jesus was all out of miracles for the day, or he just thought he was too late. But what was true was that Jesus was present. He was with Jairus, and it was his presence, even in the delay, and even in the declaration of something being too late and impossible, that brought about a different kind of healing that day. Sometimes healing looks more like holding. That's a line from a famous story that Pete Gregg tells about author and artist Joni Erickson Tata. A lot of you know her story. If you don't know, she was an athlete growing up who became a quadriplegic after a diving accident. And when he was talking to her about healing, her healing specifically, Joni told Pete that God chose not to heal me but to hold me. And sometimes he does just that. Now to sum all of it up, as my friend Tyler Staten put it, sometimes God heals by his power, alleviating our suffering here and now, and sometimes he heals by his presence, by parachuting into our need and closing the gap between us, but either way, he always heals. He always heals. And when healing happens, the laughter becomes heavenly. Heavenly laughter is what happened when Peter, James, and John walked pale face out of the room, followed by Jesus with a supernatural smile. And then following him, a 12-year-old girl, a bit groggy from a very long nap. I love that last verse in our text. Jesus says, give her something to eat. It's like Jesus is saying, look, I don't want to tell you how to take this, but you might want to throw a party because heaven has come to earth. This is the accelerated story, and this is what you have been looking forward to and one day will live in forever. 
And I imagine that everything in the house got cooked that night and there was not a drop of wine left in the village. Heavenly laughter is what happened when Sarah used a walker to come out of the bathroom with a positive pregnancy test. (laughs) Healing happens when the story gets sped up and we get to see the end a bit early and all we can do is laugh because the response is inexplicable joy. Just uh, recently, Gerald and Tyler and Brett and I got to take a trip to London. It sounds as cool as it actually was, so yes. And we had so many encounters with the Holy Spirit. If you're like, what's happened to our leaders? That's what happened, God. And don't be freaked out, just join us. And, and we had a lot of moments, but specifically last Sunday night, we were at a house with these other pastors and people, just people who prayed and prophesied and ministered to us. And God was healing us in that room. And as God started to heal each one of us, and I remember specifically Gerald, just because he's the best to watch when God's healing him and doing work. Uh, You'll see it. Uh, It's great. God started healing Gerald, and the room was just, we just started laughing so hard. And not because he was funny or anything was happening. We were so excited and joyful about what God was doing. Sometimes when the Spirit of God falls on us like that, When we see him doing an extraordinary work, we can do nothing but laugh at what he's doing. You know, you've seen it before, but I hope you see it a lot more. There's reason to laugh when God brings healing to his family. Church, I believe we are being invited, and I just mean this with all the prophetic gusto I have, that we are being invited into a season of radical, holy joy the kind born out of the work of the spirit of Jesus among us, born of moments of healing like we read about today and moments of both God's power and presence being known to us. And I want it. I want it. Do you? Great. So before we end, I just wanna talk about how we're gonna do this. Are you ready? Very simple, you can all do it. Central to our healing stories today is faith. From the bleeding woman who silently reached out to the public appeal of Jairus, we know that faith plays a central and key part in seeing God heal and in the experience of the one receiving the miracle. And so whether your faith today is born out of desperation or fear, or maybe you just have radical trust, it is the place where to start. Now, don't let this freak you out. Some of you are like, I don't have enough faith. Okay, join the the crowd. We're all here. I don't want you to freak out about that because Jesus says that the faith of a mustard seed can actually move a mountain. So all you need is just a little bit. You just need a tiny bit of faith. That's all he's asking for. So faith is the starting point, no matter how big or small. Next, um, we have to ask God to do it. You know, do you ever, like, I love for God to read my mind. I prefer it. Usually I'm like, just, you know what I want. You know, and that's not how this works. We offer our faith and we do so a lot of times by asking for it. People can't read your minds, though he can. But anyway, there's, there's more to it than that. Now, I wanna say this. Sometimes we miss out on God's healing because we have not yet asked. And often we're kept from asking because of fear of feeling like we're not worthy of it or we have um, a belief that God doesn't care about us, the enemy has told us that, or that something we have is too small. But I wanna tell you that we have not so many times because we ask not. God longs to meet us in all the areas of our need, all of them. And so with faith, we are to ask. And then often, just so you know, as you ask, you get more faith. And then when you get more faith, you keep asking. And that's how that goes. And then that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do that. We're gonna, we're gonna have faith and we're gonna ask. And then finally, we're gonna do what we learned about today. We're gonna hope, confront, wait, and then family, we are going to laugh. 
We are going to laugh at the things that God does. Now, no matter where you're coming from, the invitation today for healing is yours. I just, it's yours to participate in it and to experience it. Famous preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon once said, it is not every contact with Christ that saves men and women. It is the arousing of yourself to come near, the determinate, the personal, the resolute, believing touch of Jesus Christ which saves. The invitation today is to come and be saved, to come and experience the power and presence of God. Now, to close, I wanna tell you the rest of the story about my sister. Um, For years, we prayed and hoped that Rebecca would be healed. And if I can be honest, there was a large chunk of time that I believed we wouldn't see her healing until heaven. And in faith, we learned to confront the enemy as we declared God's victory over sickness and death. And at the same time, I had to learn to confront the reality of the chaos of evil and its impact on someone that I loved. She had multiple surgeries and treatments over the years that were painful and sometimes unhelpful. And in those times, we waited. We waited for God and his healing to come. And emotionally, the toll it took seemed almost as costly as the physical pain. Rebecca lost a lot of time during her high school years from missing school to normal activities that teenagers do. I remember she tried to leave home to go to college, but she had to come back because of her sickness. Life just wasn't normal until it was. A few, year after Becca's big hosp- a few years after Becca's big hospital stay, her body went into what doctors called radical remission. Becca had treatments and surgeries that were designed to bring healing, but only Jesus could stop the disease. And he did just that. None of us can pinpoint that moment exactly. I was on the phone with her yesterday trying to figure it out. We just know that her suffering stopped and her body began to heal. And at first we laughed in disbelief, what the heck? And then with heavenly laughter, and we still do, at what God did. Her healing was like waking up from a dream. We couldn't believe it, and yet here we are almost 20 years later, and she has not yet come out of remission. Yeah. Her body bears the scars and the effects of what the disease did to her, but her heart is confident in the love of God for her. Rebecca is watching right now on a live stream. Turn around and say hello. I'm kidding, it's a joke. (laughs) Hi, sister. Um, What she'd want you to know, and I asked her yesterday, what would you want them to know? Is that God's presence is what brought her healing. Yes, he was able and faithful to heal in power, but he was healing her long before the disease left her body. And that's what she'd want you to know. Now, I know this isn't everyone's story, Because I know there are some in here today who are still contending and right now are in need of God's healing. And I also know that there are some in here who are still contending for the healing that they or someone they love needs. And still I know that there are others who have watched those they love be held and not healed. And what I want to say to us today is this, that no matter where we find ourselves, God's presence is more powerful than our pain. And a day is coming where God will answer every prayer for healing.